Gracious Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And wonderful are you, majestic and mighty. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful are you. We pray that this morning as your glorious word goes forth, that it would be uh, accompanied by your spirit, that it would be planted in the hearts of your people, that your, your spirit would water, that it would produce fruit. And as more truth is poured onto that seed, and as your spirit is accompanying that word, then your people would would grow in grace and understanding that they would have a better understanding knowledge, Lord, of the gospel. And they would be better evangelists because of it. Lord, motivate us, encourage us to bring the gospel to our neighbors, to the nations. We pray that you would be glorified this morning and that your word would stand supreme. I do decrease, Lord, please increase. Christ, let me pray. Amen. So we are continuing our series, First Things, a study through Genesis 1 through 3. Last week when we gathered on the Lord's Day, we considered Adam's commission. Remember, Adam was priest. What else? King. What else? Prophet. So we considered last week Adam was priest, king, and prophet in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was what? A temple. A sanctuary. Is, was it not? Yes. And it was paradigmatic, we said, of future temples or future sanctuaries of God. The Lord placed his image bearer, Adam, in a specific context. That context was the Garden of Eden. His job was to work it and keep it. The context, as we said, is the garden. Adam being placed in this context to work. Therefore, Adam is a priest. But, but not just so simply. As we said last week, doctors work in where? Hospitals. Chefs work where? Kitchens. Bakers work where? Bakeries. The Lord God places Adam in the first temple. A paradigmatic temple, sanctuary of the paradigmatic or the temple's sanctuaries to come, the Garden of Eden. Adam's work was a priestly work. We learned why, though. Not, not just because the Garden is a temple, therefore Adam is a priest. We learned that Scripture uses distinct language, if you remember. Distinct language to describe the work of the priesthood. And that language is used also to describe Adam's work in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember the two Hebrew words? Eved and Shamar. Eved and Shamar, work and keep, or work and guard. When these words are put together in the same context, they are used to describe the work of the priest. And we examined this from Nehemiah or Numbers chapter 3 last week. The priest were to serve in the presence of God. What was their work? They were to serve in the presence of God. They were to keep watch or guard over the tabernacle. They were to watch and guard the people from false teaching, from false worship. They were to guard the priesthood, making sure that it, it, it abstained from the allure of sin. 
They were to guard the tabernacle from outsiders. No unclean enters into the presence of God. Amen. No intruders are allowed. And if they enter into the presence of God, what must happen to them? They must be put to death. Remember that? Put to death any unclean thing that enters into the presence of God. So we learn that this paradigm of the priesthood that we saw later began in the garden, the temple of God. So Adam was Adam's work. Adam's job was setting a standard for future work. The priest of later days, later years were following the example or the standard that was established in the garden. Are we together? Adam was a priest. Adam was also earth's first king. The garden king. He was God's representative on earth. He was God's vice regent or vice gerent, vice regent. Adam was given dominion over the entire earth. But where must his dominion begin? In the garden. Adam's dominion is over the entire earth, but he must begin somewhere in the garden. Adam was supposed to to bring Eden, as it were, to the world. Adam was to bring Eden to the world. God delegated Eden to Adam, and Adam was then called to expand the garden to the ends of the world, or to expand the temple to the ends of the world. Adam was earth's first king. All things were to be under his rule, and he was to follow the example of his creator who made the earth his footstool. Meaning what? That... The Bible says in, in Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. The Lord God worked. The Lord God worked for six days. And then what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. The Lord God completed his work of creation. And then sits enthroned over his creation in heaven as earth becomes his footstool. And God enters into his what? His Shabbat. His Sabbath rest. God enters into his rest and he calls Adam to do the same. To do what? To work and then enter into his what? Rest. God says, you follow this pattern. Work and then rest. If you work, then you will be able to enter into this, this Sabbath, this rest. And every Lord's Day or every, every Sabbath day, we are in Lord's Day now. Every Sabbath, that seventh day. Adam was reminded that there was there was an end goal to his work. There was a rest that he had not yet attained that he was striving toward. Are you with me? Amen. The creator finished his work. He brought creation to completion and then rested from the work of his creation. Entered into the work of what? Enthronement. Are you with me? God rested from his work of creation And then entered his work of enthronement. Amen. Adam's commission was to do the same. Work. And the context that he was in was the Garden of Eden. The temple of God. He had been given all authority. All authority. All rule had been given to Adam to rule on earth. His job. Work it and keep it. And last week we said that that this work that God gave Adam, it was not a burden. It was a joyful work. It was a joy for Adam to work. The hard work and the toil and the, burden and the burden did not come until after the fall. But before the fall, the work of Adam was a joyous work. He was to work. Work the work of a priest. Keep up the garden. Watch over its furnishings. 
namely the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. He was to guard the people as king. He was to minister God's word to the people and keep watch so that no unclean thing enters into the garden temple, the presence of God. Adam ruled with authority given to him with a goal in mind, a, a, and I'm going to say this word a lot, an end goal or an eschatology in mind. There was, an, there was a last things that Adam was looking forward to, a finish line that was better than the state that he was created in. And we're going to talk about that. That was better than the state that he was created in. Adam was priest, Adam was king, and Adam was prophet. The Lord God, and I said this last week, the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. Remember that? I kept saying Yahweh, Elohim. We're going to get to that next week. But the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, the, the covenant name of the Lord, the covenant Lord, as it were, comes to Adam and gives him a command. Obey and you live. Disobey and what? And you die. The Lord God comes to Adam, communicates his word, and Adam was to keep it to himself. Pass on that word. Adam was was therefore a, a prophet to the nations, to the world, and he begins with Eve. Eve is the first person that he relates God's word to as God's prophet, as God's initial receiver of revelation and then deliverer of revelation. He is he is God's prophet. Pass on God's word. God commanded Adam, you are a priest of this temple. You are king of this creation. You have my word. You have my law. Teach it. No one eats from this tree. No one eats from this tree. Adam was then placed under a period of probation, a time of trial that found its apex or its climax in Adam's encounter with who? The serpent. Adam, you are placed in this, 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 this context. Here is your job. Here is your work. Now, Adam, let's see if you are going to do what you're supposed to do. Enter the serpent. What did Adam do? Did Adam succeed in his probationary period or did he fail? Adam failed. The priests were to serve in the Lord's temple. They were to keep watch or guard over the tabernacle. They were to keep watch or guard over the people. They were to, to make sure that the priest and the priesthood stayed away from the allure of sin they were to guard the tabernacle from outsiders and put to death any outsider. And Adam failed in that job, in his responsibility. He allowed the unclean thing to enter into the holy place, the temple, the Garden of Eden. He allowed the serpent to distort God's word. He did not guard his bride. He did not keep himself from the allure of sin and ultimately disobeyed God, causing sin to enter into humanity through this broken, I'm going to say this word a lot, covenant with God. He failed in this probationary period. He fell short of the glory of God. He did not earn the right to partake of the tree of life. He did not enter into the creator's, creator's Shabbat. Let me say something to you real quick. This is tragic. It's a tragedy to hear and to, 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 to be taught these things, but to see these things. Played out in scripture. These are not just words. This really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is why we are in the state. Humanity is in the state that it is today because of this fall. This is a tragedy. 
And when you understand the depths of that tragedy, the gospel becomes so much more glorious. And even in the midst of that tragedy, there is a promise. The promise, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise, shall bruise your head, and you shall crush his heel. Which brings us to our text this morning and the doctrine that lies before us this morning. The doctrine of the covenant of works. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. And then Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 and 17. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. And the Lord God, verse 8, planted a garden, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. And the Lord God or the Lord God took the man. And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Then the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters. Why did the second member of the Trinity, the eternal word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, why did he come into the world? Think about that. Why did the eternal word made flesh come into the world? What was the reason? Was why was the Lord Jesus Christ born of a virgin? Why did he actively live in obedience, perfect obedience to the command of God? Why? Why did he passively submit to the death of a common sinner? Why? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Why did he ascend to heaven and then sit down at the right hand of God? What was the purpose of those glorious acts? Or if I may ask it a different way, why were those glorious acts even necessary? Let me seem like a lot of questions to answer, right? And we may say, well, because... Adam sinned. And you're correct. Adam did sin. How did Adam sin? Well, he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once again, you would be correct. But was there something evil about the tree? What, what, what caused Adam to sin? Was it because there was something evil in and of the tree itself? If not, 
then what was it that caused Adam to sin and thereby plunge the rest of humanity into sin with him? If we're saying, now there was nothing wrong with the tree, or maybe there was something wrong with the tree. Or maybe you say, I don't know. What was it that caused man to come, or God to come, in the flesh of man? Live, die, and rise. It is our task this morning, brothers and sisters, to argue that God's command to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, was a law. If you're taking notes, that that command was a law. That was connected to a covenant that God imposed on Adam. And this morning we will be arguing that that covenant is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. If you're taking notes, the covenant of works. Now, covenant of works. Did I come on a Lord's Day to hear about the covenant of works? Yes, you did. Is it that important? Yes, it is. Concerning the covenant of works, C.H. Spurgeon said, The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who understands, who well understands, the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, listen to this, is a master of divinity. He who understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. He says, I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based on fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace. Meaning this, if you get the garden wrong, I'm going to just interpret Spurgeon. If you get the garden wrong, you're going to get a lot of other things wrong. But if you can get the garden right, you're going to get a lot of things right. How many of you, since we've been going through the Garden of Eden... Or through Genesis 1 through 3 have already said, how many of you have said to me already, there's so much there that I really have never seen before. I thought the Bible consisted of creation, fall, or creation, man, and then the fall. But there is so much more to that. Nehemiah Cox, one of our, our fathers of the particular Baptist, if a man misses the right account of this, he is certainly bewildered. Confused in all further searchings for that truth which most concerns him to know. If you get this wrong, you're going to get a lot of other things wrong. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the covenant of works is no insignificant doctrine. Let me put it this way. There are two men in all of human history that matter the most. Not George Washington and not Abraham Lincoln. Not Martin Luther and not John Calvin. The two men who matter the most in all of human history are both named Adam. All men are either in the first Adam and they shall perish or they are in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they shall live. All men hang from the belt of these two men, one or the other. With that said, we have just two points for our consideration this morning. Number one, God's command. This is part one of Covenant of Works. We'll get part two tomorrow. God's commands 
are his law. Number one, God's commands are his law. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we have established that Adam has placed God in the Garden of Eden, the Garden Temple. His work was to be a priest, to guard the garden, to have dominion over the earth, to proclaim God's word and to expand the, the glory of the garden, the temple to the ends of the world. Are we, are we together? But is that it? No. We actually considered verses 15 through 17 last week, didn't we? But that's not it. That was just laying the foundation. Adam was given further instructions that fell under. Now, this is important. Further instructions that fell under his priestly responsibilities. So he's a priest. He's a king. He's a prophet. As priest, here is your work. Or here is the command that I give you. Adam was given what? A negative command. Taking notes, Adam was given a negative command. Now, not negative in the sense that it was a bad command, but negative in the sense that Adam was given a command about what he was not allowed to do. That's called a negative command. He's not allowed to do something, therefore it is called a negative command. Not negative in the sense that it is bad. Are you with me? Adam was, what was the negative command? Don't eat of this tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Now, there's a positive side to this command, too. Because if we conclude that the, the negative is eat and you'll die, then what's the positive? Hey, wake up. What's the positive? Don't eat and you will what? Live. So eat, die. Don't eat, live. The positive side is if you don't eat, you live. The negative side is if you do eat, you die. Okay. Are you with me? He would live. So eat, negative, die. Don't eat, positive, you live. Adam's commission was to uphold this command from God. This command was not just for Adam. It was for everyone. Do not eat of this tree. Adam was to guard that and to proclaim that, but it was for everyone starting with Adam. God gave Adam a command, and that command became a law of obedience, which obligated Adam to act in a certain way. God gives Adam a command that becomes law by which Adam must live. We know about living by laws, do we not? Here's the command that becomes law, now live by it. Adam was obligated, obligated by his creator to live in obedience to the command of God. That command became a law that Adam was to live by. Now, we asked the question at the outset, was there something evil about the tree uh, within itself? Well, in and of the tree itself, was there something evil about the tree? Think about that. Was Adam and, and are all men created with the command to forsake the knowledge of the tree of good and evil written on our hearts? Is it something natural to all men? Does that make sense? Are all men aware that eating of a particular tree is wrong? No. 
We're not. We, we, all men are aware that lying is wrong. All men are aware that, that murder is wrong. All men are aware that worshiping false gods is wrong. So do not eat of this, this tree was not a moral law. If you're taking notes, do not eat of the tree was not a moral law. It was a positive law. You guys remember we talked about moral laws and positive laws. We've spoken about them before in the past. What, what is a, a moral law? Moral laws are principles which all men must obey as being created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. Therefore, we have been created with certain laws that have been written on our heart that we by nature, via being created in the image of God, we know by nature. You shall have no other gods before me. Moral law. You shall make no idols. Moral law. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Moral law. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Positive law or moral law? Moral law. Moral law. Honor your father and mother. Moral law, positive law. Moral law. Let me just help you. All Ten Commandments are moral laws. (laughs) They're guessing. Uh, Moral law. These and the other five, I just named you the, some of five of the Ten Commandments, all ten moral laws written on the hearts of the image bearers of God and then written on stone tablets. They are universal laws. And then there are positive laws. A, a, a positive law commands you to do something, listen, that is not necessarily wrong in and of itself. There's nothing necessarily wrong in and of the tree itself, if you recall. Positive law is something, why is it positive? It's added. It's extra. It's something that God adds to. So when God tells Adam not to eat of the tree, it's not because there's something evil of the tree in and of itself, but it became wrong or it became evil when? When God said, don't eat of that. Amen. When God said, don't eat of that, now it becomes a positive law that God has added. Do not eat of this. This is how you are to live or conduct yourself as my priest. Therefore, to eat from the tree would be a sin. It would be a sin of disobedience because God has commanded him not to eat of it. Specifically, don't eat of that. God commanded Adam. God gave Adam a law. Do not eat of this tree, and if you do, you'll die. Adam's obedience or disobedience to this command would be the deciding factor of life and death. Adam's obedience or disobedience to this law would be the deciding factor of life for Adam or death for Adam. And when we study God's holy inspired word, there are a number of positive laws That God commands his people to obey as they live among the other nations. What are those laws? Circumcision. That's a positive law. That's a positive law that God commands his people to live by as they live among the nations. What's another one? Passover. That's a a positive law that God adds so that people live in this way among the other nations, etc. There are plenty more. They are added or positive laws they were not wrong in and of themselves but they were right laws for god's people 
at a particular time. Are you hearing me? They were not wrong in and of themselves, but they were right for God's people at a particular time. Meaning, they were good laws for the people of God at that time or at those times to distinguish them as the ones who worshipped and served the one true God, Yahweh. Adam had a moral law written on his heart. And God gave him a positive command. God gave him a positive command that became a law for Adam. It was to govern the way that he lived in the garden. Our confession, chapter 6, uh, paragraph 1. Listen to this. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which, he, which had been unto life, had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long to abide his honor. God gave Adam a command. The command became law, but that was not the end of the story. The law also carried with it a promise, a promise, which means that we must call this something more than just a positive law. Are you with me? So we've established it's a positive law, but there's a promise connected to it. Therefore, it's, it's more than just a positive law, which leads us to our second point. Through the law, God establishes a covenant. Through the law, God establishes a covenant. Verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When we read these verses... We must understand that there is more going on here than God just telling Adam what not to do. God is using these laws as a basis for establishing. Listen close. God is using this law as a basis for establishing a covenant with Adam. Reformed theology. And let me just say this. Every reformed confession affirms the covenant of works. Someone denies the covenant of works, a dispensationalist, a new covenant theology proponent. They are not reformed. They are denying a covenant of works that is affirmed by all, all reformed confessions. Reformed theology calls this the covenant of works. Now, let's begin with our description of or definition of covenant. I'm going to give you two definitions this morning, and I'm going to give you a longer very, very updated version of or definition of covenant of works or covenant next week. Okay. Old definition. What is a covenant? Old definition, new definition. Let's begin with the newer definition. Very simply, a covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions. Simply the new definition, a covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions in this commitment. There are two parties that are committed to each other. In this case, we're talking about God and Adam. So that first part, a divine, a commitment with divine sanctions, that's your definition. Don't worry about writing everything else down, okay? Notice that this command has divine sanctions. Now, who is the divine? God is divine. God sets the terms of the covenant. God sets the terms of the commitment. God and Adam did not sit down at a negotiating table and iron out details. There was no discussing the terms. 
There, were, there was no finally signing a, a con, signing a contract as they agreed to terms. It's not like a, it's not like a Mayweather Pacquiao. It didn't take three years, five years to, to finally decide that now we're going to agree to get together. Those of you who don't know what that means, forget it. I just realized, some of you looking at me like, what? <clears throat> the covenant has divine sanctions. God says, this is how it's going to be. God is sovereign. God is ruler over all. He has complete authority. And, and what does he do? Listen close. This is important for you to write down. He imposes a covenant on Adam. He imposes. You know what it means to impose? Some of your family knows uh, and does that to you well, right? They impose themselves on you. God imposes his covenant on Adam. How can he do that? Somebody just said it. He's God. Because he's God. And we must be careful not to see the, the, the we must be careful not to see God's imposition or, or God's imposing this covenant on Adam as a bad thing. Because when we think of imposition, we think of it normally as a bad thing. I don't mean to impose. You're imposing on me and on my family time, my private time. When God imposes himself, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a wonderful thing for Adam. God is promising through his imposition. God is promising something greater than what Adam had via his initial creative state. Are you with me? God was promising something more than what he had when he was created. And, and, and more than what he has if he obeys. That sounds like a sweet deal. God is coming to Adam and saying, and we're going to touch on this more. God is saying to Adam, here is my, my law, my covenant. And if you obey, it will bode well for you. God determines the terms of this covenant and sanctions. Now, let, let's get to the older definition. Here's the older definition. It is a promise that is su suspended upon a condition. The older definition, a promise that is suspended upon a condition. And what is this definition trying to say? It is saying that someone promises something, I will do thus and so, and whether or not that part of the promise is fulfilled is dependent upon a condition or suspended upon a condition, meaning I will give you the promise if you do thus and so. You with me? There's a work that you must do. There's an obedience. Now, let me just say this. Obedience and work are synonymous. Or you can say they are words that are interchangeable. Are you with me? So if someone says, obey and I give. Well, what is someone doing through obedience? Working. If you obey, then you receive. Are you with me? So it is appropriate to say work. Covenant of works or covenant of, of obedience. Same thing. A promise is made. But there are elements. There are terms that govern whether or not you will receive that promise. So how does a covenant work? We return to the point that we made earlier in this sermon. Covenants are divinely imposed. God does not ask for permission. When he involves participants in establishing a covenant. You with me? When you were, were courting, as that's the popular word right now, when you were courting your wife or whatever, there was at least some kind of permission asked. May I have your number? May I know your name? May we please go out on a date? Imagine if your husband or if your wife said, 
we're getting married today. Out of nowhere, walked up on you and said, we're getting married today. And here's what you must do. Some of you might like that. But for most of normal human beings, we would be completely weirded out by someone who came to us and said that. I don't know who you are, where you've come from, what your background is. And you're going to impose this covenant, this agreement, this commitment on me. God imposes covenants. He imposes covenants. And, and, and we usually cringe at the thought of, especially as Americans, we cringe at the thought of anyone imposing anything on us, especially laws. We, we as Americans, I mean, we hate our laws. I mean, don't we? We hate laws, but we actually love laws. We love laws more than we realize that we love laws. We hate speed limits, but we love the fact that people are not driving down our streets 70 miles an hour, unless you live down my mom's street. We hate laws, but then we actually... We actually do love laws, and we can name a number of laws that, that we might actually take for granted. But the point is that laws are meant for our protection, listen, and our well-being, for the betterment of our lives. They are often meant to make our lives better rather than worse. Now, I know there's some laws that make our lives worse, but you understand the point. Now, take that understanding to God. Does God write on our hearts laws that are eternally for our good? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Not stealing, not lying, observing the Sabbath, all morally good and right for us. They are good things. God give, gives us laws that are beneficial for his people. And even in specific times and places that are good for his people. Think about the covenants that God has made with his people. And listen, covenants that God has, we're talking about imposition, God imposing covenants. Think about the covenants that God has imposed upon people throughout history. The covenant of works, which we're arguing for today, it leads to eternal life. A good thing. Think about the Noahic covenant that God made with, with, with Noah. And actually what God makes with the earth. Was that a good thing? It was a great thing. I'm preserving the world. Think about the Abrahamic covenant. What is it? A covenant of life in Canaan and a promise of the Messiah. That's a great thing. Think about the Mosaic covenant. How to will live well in the land of Canaan. Think about the Davidic covenant. A wonderful king who keeps the law for the people of God. Think about the covenant of redemption. Redemption of the elect. Upon the resurrection of the... Upon the completed work of Christ and his resurrection. These are all wonderful covenants that God has imposed on his people. And, and, and it's the way that God, as our confession says, it's the way that God condescends to, to man. The way that God condescends to man, meaning this, he does not have to do that. God is under no obligation to make a covenant with anybody. That is good gospel news that God did not have to leave us in sin, but through the covenant of redemption chose before the foundation of the world, before the fall to send Christ to be our substitute. God condescends. He's in, in no obligation in any kind of way. Here's, here's our, our confession. The distance between God. I'm going fast again, aren't I? Chapter seven, paragraph one. The distance between God and man and the creature is so great. 
and although, that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension, they could have, we could have never saved ourselves. But God voluntarily condescends, becomes man in the flesh on God's part, which he had pleased to express by way of covenant. God was under no obligation and yet condescends and does so through covenant. Our loving, gracious, merciful God condescends to man. And he graciously calls, draws his people near through covenant. God makes the first move. And those whom he has covenanted with respond in obedience and faith. This was a good thing for Adam. That, that, that God imposes a covenant on Adam is a good thing. God is promising something that, 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 that was better than, than what Adam had at the outset of his creation. And now... now we have paused at times for people who have said to me, what do you mean? What do you mean God is promising Adam something better than he had at his creation? Pause for a second. Was Adam sinless at creation? Class, was Adam sinless at creation? Yes, he was. Now, let's ask another question. But was Adam able to sin at creation? Adam was created in a mutable or changeable state. He could better his situation or he could worsen his situation dependent upon how he lived in obedience to the law or command or covenant of God. God promised if you obey, things will get a lot better. What, what will get better? You will enter into rest or glory. What did all men fall short of? You will enter into glory. And in glory, it's an immutable state. Meaning, unchangeable state. So Adam, you are created in this changeable initial state. But if you obey, you will, you will achieve glory. Through your work, you will achieve glory that is unchangeable. Better than what you have right now. That sounds like a good deal. It was a promise to something like eternal life. Well, it was promised of eternal life. Adam had to earn it, though. Adam had to work for it. God, God was not giving Adam a law. And his life could have been better. His life would have been better. God establishes this covenant with Adam. If God establishes a covenant based upon law, then our response is accordance to law. What do you do with the law? You keep it. You obey. But on the other hand, if God establishes a law or a covenant based upon promises, then what is your response to a promise? Let me slow down because some of you might not understand what I just said. If God says... Command, law, what is your response? Obey. But if God says, promise, then what is your response? Receive. Do you see how we skipped law or command, law, and then promise? God says, 
promise. Receive. Command law. You worked for it. You get the promise. Promise. Are you hearing? Are you, are you walk, walking with me? If God says keep this law in order to receive the reward or the promise, then the covenant partner's response, that person who's in that covenant with them, his response is obedience or work. So a command becomes law. Law becomes a covenant by which one works to achieve the reward. Are you with me? But if God says receive this promise, what is there for you to do? By faith, receive it. It's not earned or worked for. It is graciously given and received. Amen. If God suspends a promise on a condition, obey. If God suspends a promise on reception, then receive. I said the same thing in a different way. Now, going back to a definition of the covenant of work, covenant, a covenant. It's a covenant or a commitment with divine sanctions. Now, what is a sanction? We have probably been hearing a lot about sanctions in the news with Donald Trump and his uh, threats and upon threats and upon threats. One more time, North Korea. Okay, one more time, North Korea. We know what a sanction is. Do this and obey. Do this, obey. If you don't, there is a sanction consequence. Consequence. A sanction consequence or penalty. A law carries with it. A threat that guarantees participation of both parties. Okay? So we make a commitment. And in this commitment, there's a threat. Should we not keep our end of the bargain? Uh, In the Old Testament, they used to split animals in half. When there were two people that were coming together for an agreement or for a covenant. And as they split those two animals in half, the two parties who were involved in this covenant would walk together on that blood. It was called the way of blood. And they would say, thereby walking through that way of blood, let what has been done to these animals be done to me should I not keep my end of the bargain. Or this is the sanction if I do not keep my end of this bargain. Are you with me? Threats ensure that everyone keeps their end of the bargain. If you obey, what? You live. If you disobey, what? You die. Our son loves Super Mario Brothers, uh, Mario Kart specifically, Ah, Mario World 2. When he's eating his dinner, he is allowed to play for a certain amount of time if he eats all of his dinner. You with me? Eat all of your food and you will be able to enjoy your game. If you don't eat all of your food, you will not be able to play your game. What's the sanction? What's the penalty? You won't be able to play. If you do eat your food, you can play, obey, and you will receive. But there's a work, and it takes like three hours for my son to work, (laughs) to finish it, like three hours, literally. He eats like my nephew Moses. Work, and you will obey or will have earned the right to enjoy. But in the case of a promise, then the sanction, now remember the penalty, In the case of a promise, the sanction comes upon the one who gives the promise, not the one who receives it. Are you with me? In the case of the promise, the one, the sanction, the penalty is upon the one who's made the promise, not the one who's received it. There are times when my wife, especially, will come home and bring 
a gift to my son. And all he has to do is receive it. There is a gracious promise. Now, my, my wife may say, I'm going to get this for you today. And no conditions. I'm going to buy this for you today. When she comes home or when I come home, what is he expecting? The promise. He's expecting to see the fulfillment of what you have promised. You said you were going to bring me this. So then who does the sanction or penalty lie on if that promise is not fulfilled? The person who made the promise. Are you with me? When you put all these things together, God introduces a command. That command becomes a law. People either respond with obedience and and work for it. Then you have a formal or receive a promise and you have a formal covenant. It is complete. Now, when God imposes a law and man pledges obedience, God threatens the man who must obey. It is called the covenant of works. Man must keep the law in order to earn his reward. Covenant of works. Now, in the same way, if God introduces a promise, God gives the promise. Then the divine sanctions are upon God. And that is called the covenant of grace. You see the difference there? So the one who worked, covenant of works. The one who received, covenant of grace. Why is it grace? Because it's free. It's free. It didn't ask for anything. Can't be paid back. Can't be earned. It's free. If I do not make good on this, God, God receives the sanction. Think about this just came to my, my, my attention this past weekend. Think about God's covenant with Noah. God makes a promise. I will never do this. Who is he promising? Uh, who, who receives the sanction should he break his promise? God. God says, I will never do this. I will never destroy the earth again. Right? Right? Okay. <laughs> I will never destroy the earth again in, in such a way. And then what does he put in the sky as his sign? Have you ever seen a bow and arrow? The arch of the bow is pointed toward who? The target. As you see a rainbow, who is the arch pointing to? Pointing to God. God is saying about himself, I am the target of this covenant. Should I break my covenant, should I break my law, then the sanction is upon me. He said, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and who? And the earth. And Noah is his witness. God sanctions who? I sanction myself. Wow. Are you with me now? Romans 4, 5, 4, 4, and 5. Now to the one who works, just write it down. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Are you there? You see that? To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. It's not grace. He earned it. It's his due. When you go to work and you get your check, your boss usually does not say, man, you know what? I got something for you. I've been thinking about you all week. I want to give you something special. You worked 40 hours. Here you go, buddy. 
you would slap that boss in the face as if he gave you something as a gift. You earn that. It's your due. But listen to the second part. And to the one who does not work, <laughs> but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Work, you earned it. But there's another one that doesn't work, that just receives. And it, it, it's ungodly who receive, and yet the ungodly are receiving this gift that makes them righteous, and they've done nothing for it. Do you see the distinction here? Work and grace. God in the garden is establishing with, with Adam a covenant of work. Work. Now, you can either work in Adam or you can receive in Christ. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, no longer on the basis of works, but it is it is by grace. It is no, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Receive it by faith or try your best and fail to work. Galatians 3.12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What was Paul saying? The Mosaic, covet, the Mosaic law was not the gospel. Why? Because it was law. What does law demand? Obedience. And can we obey the law? No. Are you seeing the gospel now? Yes. What was the major problem in the book of Galatians or with the people of Galatia? They were receiving a false gospel. The gospel that says, work and you will receive. But the gospel says, work has been done. Simply receive. When God established a covenant based upon law, man responds with obedience. The sanctions are then threatened on that person who is in the covenant. It's a covenant of works. And when God makes a covenant based upon promise, the sanction is upon God. It's a covenant of grace. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you see the gospel in this. That when you think of the garden, you don't just think of, of creation, man, and then fall. But that you see, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. One man's obedience, many become sinners. One man's disobedience, or obedience, many become righteous. Romans chapter 5. Now with that in mind, all that we have just said in mind, let's read... Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and then we'll, we'll close. With all that you've learned this morning, take that with you as we read. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God, is, is Lord there capitalized? We'll talk about that next week. Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree, of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So then why was there a need for the Lord Jesus Christ to come? The Lord Jesus Christ came because the first Adam broke the covenant of works. 
that were imposed upon him by his creator. God gave Adam a command. Do not eat of this tree. And if you do eat of this tree, you will die. If you don't eat of this tree, you will live. The command became law. Adam stood as our, if you're taking notes, federal head. Adam stood as our federal head or covenant head. He was our representative. I don't like that federal head. I don't like that representative. Who's the president of the United States? He's your federal head. He's your representative. When he goes to other countries, he represents you. Adam was our representative. He stood as our covenant head. If Adam succeeded in his covenant, he would have earned the right to the tree of life and lived. And if he failed, he would die and be expelled from the presence of God. If he succeeded, if he succeeded, we would have all succeeded. If he failed, we all fail. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What happened? Adam failed. Adam failed. Through one man's disobedience, the many became sinners. And listen to this, brothers. Why? Why the need for Christ to come? Because all other covenants thereafter could not repair Adam's fall. All other covenants thereafter could not repair Adam's fall. All the other covenants could not save. The blood of bulls and goats could not atone for the sin of humanity. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, wrapped in human flesh, came to fulfill the covenant that he had with his father, the covenant of redemption. He came and stands as a representative, a covenant head, a, a new representative, a new federal head. And he re represents a new creation or a new people. A people that he has known and loved before the foundation of the world. And what does he do? He works. He lives a sinless life. He comes born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He lives in active obedience to the law for his entire life. He passively submitted to, to death and became the substitute for his new people, for his creation on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, which is the Lord's day, and entered into his rest. He entered into his glory. He sits down. His work is done. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He entered into what Adam lost. He did not fail in that work. And because he did not fail, then those who are his, then they do not fail. Because he stands for them and offers them this Gracious, free gift of faith. Faith in who? In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. Now, there are still questions. There are, there are opponents to this. Well, where's the word covenant in the book of Genesis? How do we know that there's even a covenant in the garden? What is this covenant of works? I think we've, we've made a good, a good, solid, at least foundational argument for covenant of works. Next week, we're going to give a scriptural basis, and I think we've done that already, but we're going to give a scriptural basis for this covenant of works in our second part next week. Let's stand.